Love Letters Between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi Presented by Catherine Bucknell Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi Music by Edmund Jolliffe If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it and subscribe to it. Episode 4 New Friends at the start of 1965, Don was 30. Chris was 60, exactly twice his age. It was an exciting time for Don. He was commissioned by Lincoln Kirstein to draw the dancers of the New York City Ballet and the actors in the American Shakespeare Festival. Kirstein, a founder of both, was a powerful force in the New York art world. He was an old friend of Chris, and he'd been fond of Don for years. The commission marked his recognition not just of Don's talent, but also of his professional achievements. Kirstein was a complicated man, a brilliant advocate of modernism in the arts, an accomplished poet and critic, and bipolar, subject to mania, depression, and paranoia. He was married, but generally had a boyfriend living in the house he shared with his wife. He was also a millionaire by inheritance, and he was used to getting his own way. Don intended to stay in New York for two months. He was there for six, with one break back in Santa Monica. Meanwhile, Chris began teaching a writing seminar at UCLA, and he got to work on his new novel, A Meeting by the River, about two brothers. The younger brother is about to take his final vows as a monk at a monastery in India. The older brother, a married, bisexual, adulterous publisher and film producer, tries to dissuade him. This simply structured narrative addresses complex life choices. Between the spiritual life and the worldly life, between sexual identities, between self and family, between truth-telling and cynical comfort, between doubt and belief. Chris visited Don briefly in late January and early February, but when he got back home, he was lonely for him and wrote often with tempting gossip, such as what was going on among the stars on the set of Gavin Lambert's film Inside Daisy Clover. He reminded Don of his abject and compliant devotion. Old Dub thinks and thinks of his dear Kitty and is happy to do whatever Kitty says because he now belongs to Kitty entirely and will just try to be useful in the few ways old horses can. Meanwhile, Don brooded on his own life choices. Modeling himself on Chris was not enough. As a writer, Chris sold his skills professionally to the movie studios and he was content to do their bidding partly because in his fiction, he was free to do as he liked. When he portrayed a friend or acquaintance in a book, he was only a little influenced by concern about their reactions. He did ask, for example, Jean Ross, the woman who inspired Sally Bowles, for permission to include her abortion in his story about her. By contrast, as a portrait painter, Don was both master and bondsman. 
He had control over his subjects while they were sitting for him because during that time, he held a little part of their destiny, their visual identity, in his hands. But he was, at the same time, a kind of servant, relying on their patience and physical self-control during the sitting, and after the sitting, relying on their opinion of what he'd done. Such opinions were likely to be pretty subjective. A lot of the time, his sitters were the ones paying him, or sometimes it was a patron on whose whim his fate dangled, like Holbein at the court of Henry VIII. Success could never free him from this. On the contrary, the more he succeeded, the higher the stakes. Expectation only placed him more completely in the possession of others, since they believed he could make them look a certain way or somehow reveal who they really were. Every time he painted a portrait, he had to fight free of all this and paint what he saw. This made it hard for him to commit himself unreservedly to anything. The Anticassa, Wednesday, March 3rd, 1965, New York. My darling drub, there is not much to tell, my dear. Kitty's life in New York seems to be getting more and more uneventful, and yet I can't help feeling it is all part of an important phase in a kitten's small life, a terrible, frightening, mysterious turning point which must occur, but which nevertheless makes Kitty tremble. One thing is for certain, never before has Kitty asked himself so often what is his tiny life all about. He asks himself over and over, what does he want? If not this, then what? Kitty is continually rejecting possible bowls of cream, and yet he doesn't know quite what he wants instead, except that he does long to devote all of his fur to something, to painting, to Ramakrishna, to old Dub, maybe even to all three. He realizes he has never made up his mind, really. He's always been testing and tasting, dipping his paw in here, his tail in there, trying a tunnel as far as the point where his whiskers touched the sides. But then sometimes Kitty feels that perhaps this is the nature of life, at least of his life, a succession of glimpses, some satisfying, some not. Perhaps, he thinks, the state of waiting, of expectation, of near desperation sometimes, is a quite rewarding, maybe even profound state to be in, if he can just manage to accept it and go along with it. All these thoughts, and so many more, occupy Kitty unceasingly, and somehow or other, Kitty will make up his mind and devise a plan of action if only because he must. But that dear Dubbin is always in his thoughts, near him, supporting him, and being loved by him with all of a cat's heart and soul. The drawings of Frank O'Hara on Sunday afternoon came out quite well. He was a good sitter, and I think he was a sweet man. At least he spoke well against Lauren Betty Bacall Bogart Robards, which endeared him to me. 
Joe Lesseur, too, is nice, cosy, chatty, gossipy, indiscreet about his affairs, and altogether, surprisingly to me, feminine. I had not imagined him at all like that. I went with Frank O'Hara to have a drink with Joe Sunday evening. Joe's current love was there, a 21-year-old, gangling, grinning, bespectacled, joke, Anthony Perkins-type boy named Joe Brainerd. He's a would-be shy, somewhat calculating tease, but quite friendly in spite of it all. His pop artwork, mostly object collages, Jack Larson and Jim Bridges have two small, inferior ones, is not bad if you go along with it. I will, for a few steps anyway. Went to Lincoln's for dinner afterwards with Richard Buckle, not at his charming best, and a dwarf Jewish sculptress from England, Astrid Zeidauer, who is unexpectedly nice. Lincoln is still manic and, oh, so difficult and boring to be with. I think a lot of Buckle's edginess was due to having been subjected to Lincoln all weekend long in the country. Kitty is off by his cat self this afternoon to see the letter to soothe his tortured soul. How he wishes he had his nag to ride him there. Kitty could hide his puss in Drub's mane when they get out the gun. Kitty is always so shocked by any violence. All of a kitten's love to own darling horse. Don was absent from New York for six weeks in the spring. And when he got back, he became the victim of one of Kirstein's periods of self-doubt. He suspected that George Balanchine, the great Russian choreographer who had co-founded the New York City Ballet with Kirstein in 1933, had disparaged the ballet portraits, triggering uncertainty in Kirstein about the project Kirstein had launched. The modernist aesthetic at the core of the Kirstein-Balanchine partnership was rooted in pre-war Europe. They didn't have eyes to see what Bacardi was up to in 1965. Balanchine's genius, adored by Kirstein, was abstract, formal, neoclassical, sometimes monumental, always technical. His ballets were stripped of story, character, costume, sets. At their best, they were dance steps articulating pure music. Don, a child of Hollywood and a student of life drawing from the Renaissance masters onward, is fascinated by psychology, and he always pursues the individual personality as it's evident in a face at one particular moment in time. He doesn't generalize or idealize. In the 1960s, he worked in pencil and later in more demanding pen and ink, both often with ink wash. Each delicately executed portrait kind of hovers on a plain white sheet, like a ghostly evocation of that private, unique moment between sitter and artist. This was a significant clash between the Balanchine-Kirstein aesthetic and the Bacardi aesthetic. Don was defiant, but the lack of support from Kirstein changed his own feelings about his work. Thursday, 17th of June, 1965, New York. Dear Precious Pony, 
Drubbin's brownies arrived to strengthen frail Kitty, who has already gobbled down several. They're even more delicious than the first ones and not quite so crushed by the mailing. Not much news of any interest to report to my darling. Lincoln came to see my latest drawings on Sunday night and gave them a very lukewarm reception. I wouldn't allow myself to indulge in the fury I felt, realising he was in a low state of mind and anyway doesn't have the faintest idea of what's any good, and if he did, wouldn't have the courage of his conviction. He will never be able to stop thinking of me as a dear little boy from the West. I don't fit into any of his preconceived ideas about the artist. He can't explain to himself how I could possibly be any good, really. His only way of coping with me is to treat me like a student in need of guidance, and so I have to listen to talk about form and vision. Lincoln suffers more than anybody else I know from knowing too much for his own good. He even discourages himself because there is always some form of opposition, some basis for criticism, if you look for it, for any stand one might take. And Lincoln, as you know, is the most awful coward and will back down at the slightest bark from any ass, including Madame Balanchine, who may be a genius as a choreographer, but is just a vain, silly, know-nothing about other things, most particularly the visual arts. Nevertheless, Lincoln is pushing forward with plans for publishing the ballet drawings. The idea now is to have a portfolio of reproductions, each on single sheets without binding and with, perhaps, a biography of each dancer on the back, to be sold at the theatre but quite independent from the souvenir programme. The best arrangement, I think, though I can't imagine any kind of notable sales. Kitty is still struggling valiantly and, in spite of all doubts in him, has done some first-rate drawings but I think a phase of his career is coming to an end. I don't think he will ever work in this way again, once the ballet drawings are done. The period of the Bacardi drawing, as we know it, is over. And if he draws again, which is not absolutely certain, his work will be totally different from what has gone before. Anyway, Kitty is anxious to get into his painting smock again. He is strong enough now to be an artist, and he doesn't feel any longer that he has to keep proving himself by getting a likeness of any old fool. He really is stronger. All of this feverish, intensive drawing of the last two weeks has been done without even the aid of Dexamil, except for one day when Kitty wasn't feeling quite well. It is possible, though, that this sense of strength is just a delusion, resulting from too much time spent in New York, where everyone else is so weak, stupid and silly that by comparison... A simple little furred thing from Los Angeles feels like Lao Tse. Virgil Thompson had me to dinner again and was very sweet, as usual but an elegant pair of refined New York queens who came along for the ride produced more boredom than they were worth. Otherwise, when Kitty isn't working, though he usually is, thank goodness, he feels very sad and lonely for his old leathery dub and longs for the warmth of his old flanks and the moist smell of hay in his long mane. Kitty loves that old horse so much, more than ever, and can't wait to be beside him again. His adoring tabby. Kiss, 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 kiss.
During 1965, Don was also getting ready for a West Coast show, which opened at the Rex Evans Gallery in Los Angeles in January 1966. By mid-February, he'd again established himself in New York, this time for a little over two months. He was there at Kirstein's request to supervise the engraving and printing of the drawings for the portfolios of reproductions to be sold at performances. I read in Chris's diary that Don told Chris in mid-April 1966 that he must delay his return to Santa Monica because Balanchine had just seen the set of engravings and had asked to be drawn himself and included in the series. Balanchine also requested that three of the ballet dancers' portraits be done again. If he had disparaged the portraits to Kirstein, Balanchine had also certainly engaged with the project. But the engravings never went on sale. I wanted to know why. It had been a mystery to Don, too. He had eventually discovered that Kirstein had made the whole commission without ever consulting Balanchine. And Kirstein now couldn't bring himself to ask Balanchine's permission, partly because he had gradually adopted the paranoid idea that Balanchine would assume Don was a boyfriend Kirstein was trying to promote. The engravings were already being printed. Kirstein returned them to Don. Don showed me one set of engravings on which Balanchine wrote comments in red pencil. The comments are casual, and they don't show, actually, much respect for what they're written on. But they reflect Balanchine's personal attitudes to some of the dancers, and this shows that Balanchine, wittingly or unwittingly, was affected by the intimate psychology of Don's work. Even though he he excluded psychology from his own work, he wrote, for instance, I hate her on one portrait and he can't dance on another. There are no criticisms of Don's drawing. Don was understandably disappointed when the project was scrapped. Outraged, probably. And there was a dust-up with Kirstein. Afterwards, Kirstein refused to see Chris or Don ever again. Whist and Auden tried to reconcile them, but to no avail. Don later blamed himself for ending this close and long-standing friendship of Chris's. Yet Kirstein's refusal to forgive and to reconcile suggests Kirstein couldn't face his own role in the episode and therefore couldn't face Don or Chris. In the meantime, Chris had completed three drafts of A Meeting by the River, and he accepted a job writing a television script for an ABC Christmas special about the song Silent Night. During September and October 1966, the travel shoe was on the other foot. Don stayed home in Santa Monica while Chris went to work on his script in Oberndorf, Austria, near Salzburg, where the words and music for Silent Night were written and first performed in the 19th century. From there, he went to England. In England, Chris was starting a new book that would carry him away from the now of the 1960s deep into the past, a memoir of his parents that he eventually called Kathleen and Frank. 
he went to Cheshire to stay with his brother Richard in a newly built tract house on land that had once belonged to his family. The house itself was owned by a couple paid to care for Richard since the death of Kathleen. They visited Chris's birthplace, Wibbersley Hall, which had begun falling into ruin. Chris's grandparents' house, Marple Hall, had already been torn down after the main chimney collapsed during the 1950s. October 24, 1966. Disley. Adored pink tongue. What a rat race this is. I'm just through copying some truly wonderful passages from my mother's diary about my father's death, because Richard doesn't want to part with the diary even temporarily. However, I'm bringing back a couple of volumes of copies she made of all my father's letters from the front, and I have the official account of the Marple ghost story and other goodies. Meanwhile, the food here is suffocating, and Dobbin has to rush out for trots up and down the hill to keep his liver working. Richard now practically refuses to go out. He says that since he had bronchitis four years ago, he gets breathless if he walks uphill, and since that's unavoidable, he won't walk. Yesterday, he drank beer all day, and today he started at breakfast time. He remains quite lucid, and maybe it is a way of life. At least he doesn't smoke anymore. As for me, I'm refusing to drink at all as long as I'm up here, because somehow that would be more than I could bear to have hangovers in this place. Yesterday, the family was home all day. Mr. Dan Bradley is 55. Very sweet, really. Big like a house, but short. Works in a dye works not far away. Left-wing views. We get along fine. And on Wednesday, we're all driving down to London together because he wants to see the motor show. Then I shall be free. What is very good is that Richard had only expected me to stay the weekend, so I've proved to be more generous than he'd hoped, whereas I felt guilty. He's really very sweet. And we live entirely in the past. He remembers everything about everybody and is a mine of information about the family. But what will become of him? Mrs. Dan is a plump, smiling, and I think truly good-natured and undesigning woman, and she cooks enough for ten people. All the meals are profuse. She and Dan look after him, and he's much cleaner, though his fly is still usually open. He drinks until he vomits, and then goes on drinking. He helps them a lot with money, I think, but they don't need or demand much, and the place is clean. What my mother used to call sniffily a council house, i.e. built by the town council. You hear the neighbour's television, but then so you do everywhere. The weather is perfect, sometimes on the verge of rain, with a great tragic sky and the low hills sodden as if by Dubbin's tears. But that's how it should be. This landscape isn't meant to make you laugh. I long to walk miles, but as I say, Richard can't or won't. I went to Quaker meeting yesterday, discovered one right by the church in a 300-year-old house which used to be a pub called the Ringer Bells a hundred years ago. The British Quakers are bleaker and less effusive than the Philadelphia ones, but I was welcomed as our American friend, and it was heaven to sit perfectly quiet. 
Whenever I try to meditate in my room, Mrs. Dan comes in with a cup of coffee. Tea, this trip suddenly disagrees with me. I go into spasms as if I'd taken poison. But the coffee, well, you know all about that. We also went to Wibbersley, which is now, quite frankly, a tomb. My father's pictures are rotting. But what am I to do? R says, take one. But it's like being told to save one refugee child from Vietnam. Then he doesn't want to wait while I go right through the portfolios. I hope, however, if you and I return fairly soon, we may find a few of them still alive. I'm also trying hard to read Vedekin's Pandora's Box, the Lulu plays, in fact, for a stage adaptation, but I just do not have the time. Richard longs to talk, and I must get the copying done, and then in comes the family, and there is supper and telly. God, my mother's and father's letters are fascinating. In one of them, my father makes a strange apology to her for lack of reciprocity, and he seems to be in some sort of coldness, sexual or emotional. As for my mother, she says, bitter against Uncle Jack, none of the Isherwoods feel things much. Oh, Catkin, how Dub needs him. That old horse is restless and uneasy in this graveyard among the mildewy ghosts. He's afraid a mean old skeleton will jump on his back and ride him away to the glue factory. Meanwhile, terrible on the horizon stands that curious little tower, Lime Cage, a 16th century hunting lodge. It is like something you see in a dream which means something else, thoroughly Freudian and unpleasant. No more for now, love, because Richard, who is just sitting and drinking beer and doing nothing, is beginning to show impatience and slam his hand on the arm of the chair to indicate that I must talk to him, and I have got to get out in the air and take at least a few deep breaths before sunset. One more whole day, then we're off. Kitty is to take the most precious care of himself and make a list of things Dub can do to please him when he returns. As always, his adoring old plug, D. Richard just asked who I was writing to, and I told him, and he said, give him my love. Chris's father was a fine watercolorist who exhibited and sold his work in London. In 1911, he quit his job as a professional soldier in order to paint professionally. But after the arrival of his second child, he decided to rejoin his regiment. The stage adaptation of Frank Vedekin's Lulu plays had been suggested to Chris by the artistic director of the Royal Court Theatre in London, Anthony Page. Chris and Page met on a night out in the Docklands pubs with Patrick Proctor, the painter, and Bob Register, a producer friend of Tony Richardson's. The evening began with dinner in a Chinese restaurant in Limehouse called, oddly enough, New Friends. Within a year and a half, Chris's new friend, Anthony Page, was also to become a new and very particular friend of Don. Don's 1968 letters reveal that his relationship with Page was to come closer than any other to separating Don from Chris altogether. For now, Chris was increasingly absorbed by the past, which he'd left behind in England when he emigrated in 1939. A few weeks after he arrived back in California, the musical version of Goodbye to Berlin 
opened on Broadway, Cabaret. Don flew to Manhattan to see it a week after it opened. Chris himself stayed away. He never saw it at all. He was delighted that it was a success. The revenues made him and Don financially secure for the rest of their lives. The show also made him famous for the third time. But of course, the character, Herr Isivu, devised in the 1930s, had little to do with the real Christopher Isherwood by now. Herr Isivu, as Isherwood's Berlin landlady had called him, is the narrator in Goodbye to Berlin. He's little more than a literary mask concealing any sexual identity in order to focus on the other characters in his stories. The stage character, Harry Sivu in I Am a Camera and Cabaret, was based on him, but adapted and again changed by stage writers. Chris himself, meanwhile, had taken up a new way of life in California, where he had developed and matured in countless ways, and where he'd articulated his gay identity more and more openly in his writing. In May 1967, Chris went back to London for about a month to promote A Meeting by the River, which was published that year. The novel shows how highly he valued the life he had chosen not to take up as a monk, how tenderly he felt towards his guru, how devotedly he believed in his guru's belief and his guru's sanctity. And at the same time, the novel protects this spiritual treasure by including a cynical character, the worldly older brother, who voices harshly and knowingly the skepticism Isherwood's critics might be expected to voice. This gives the novel a tough, worldly feel, a a kind of shell. While he was in London, Chris worked on arranging another London exhibition for Don, and he sent Don catalogs from shows that he saw of Francis Bacon and Patrick Proctor. He and Anthony Page agreed to go ahead with the adaptation of the Lulu plays Earth Sprite and... Pandora's box. Like Pandora, they did not foresee what would happen once they lifted the lid. The Animals, a selection from the book The Animals, love letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, Presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood. Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi. Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Join us for episode 5, Pandora's Box. The Animals Podcast is produced by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Recorded in London at the Rhythm Studio with James Carey and at Heavy Entertainment with David Roper. Post-production by Toma Run. Editing by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Website by Zenobi Purvis. Podcast conceived by Joe Rodota with Catherine Bucknell. We would like to thank the Huntington Library, San Marino, California and the Wiley Agency. Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, Penguin Random House, and Farah Strauss and Giroux donated rights for this podcast, which is underwritten by the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. 
Special thanks to Cast and Creatives for donating time to this podcast. Copyright Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell and The Animals Podcast 2017.